Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. My name is Tim Montgomery and welcome to this special edition of the Times Opinion Podcast coming from the 17th floor of the Times Building in London Bridge. You may already have heard our podcast where three of my guests today, David Aronovich, Jenny Russell and Danny Finkelstein, discuss the general election. But in front of our studio audience now, we're just going to take some questions responding to perhaps what they heard and some other questions that they might want to raise about politics. But our first question from the gentleman in the marine blue socks in the front row. Jonathan Davies, is there anything to say about the Liberal Democrats? Uh, both about why they did so badly and how they're going to come back. David Aronovich, in your pre-election <laughs> column, you more or less invited people to vote yeah, for the Liberal Democrats. This was an extraordinary that thing. Worked. Not many people took your advice. Uh, <laughs> no, actually, I said in the column it wasn't advice, and somebody then sent a letter to the Times saying, you're too modest, I took it. <laughs> He's a, a, a Conservative voter who decided to vote Lib Dem on the basis of my arguments, and I thought, one. <laughs> One is a very small number of... No, actually, I kind of posited the possibility of this cable balls uh, alliance, etc., and both of them lost their seats. So, yeah, the, 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 Liberal, De- the Liberal Democrats are shattered. It's uh, a matter now of, bu- uh, of building up right. I mean, all the clichés have been said about it. Essentially, what happens when a party, which is essentially protest party, be- comes to believe that it must be something more than a protest party, goes into the government with one absolute cast-iron commitment made as a pledge, which was a stupid pledge to make on tuition, it was a stupid pledge to make in the first place, goes in, becomes, as a left-of-centre party, works with a right-of-centre party, has to break its pledge as the absolute first thing and so on, and as a result, all the people who were protesting leave you and join other parties, vote for other people one way or another. Even so... We did imagine, I think, I mean, the one aspect of the polls, uh, the one aspect of the polls that I thought probably was broadly right was that the Liberal Democrats would keep about half their seats because they had this incredible capacity to ramp up support in seats they already kept. They really did. They had an incredible operation. And that, and they believed in it. And we, on the whole, believed it. it was an act of prestidigitation. And it didn't happen. It didn't work anymore. And frankly, I have no idea where they go from here. I mean, they're now in opposition, so they can go back to the thing. They can go back to the business of trying to say, we're not Labour or the Tories. But there are other parties who also say the same thing, who in the meantime have come up with a right to be, to be heard in the same space. Jenny Russell, they're not going to be on question time so much anymore. They're not going to be in the news quite so much. They don't have the MPs that David has just described are dug into their constituency. They have the Green Party um, biting at their heels in lots of constituencies, representing 
that progressive side, they have UKIP pretending or professing to be the protest party that the Lib Dems want. Could actually this be the end of the Liberal Democrats? Not just a big reverse for the Liberal Democrats, but could this be the end for them? I think that's possible. And British electoral history tells us that, for instance, the Liberal Party can more or less disappear, as it did for much of the last three quarters of the 20th century. And I think it'll be a great shame if that happens. And I think the Liberal, Lib Dems were, were basically punished for being naive and for being decent. They went, and I think that part of the narrative has been forgotten. They went into government because at the time we were all terribly worried about whether a hung parliament could possibly deliver any kind of stable future. We were worried about the reaction of the bond markets. We thought that Britain was in deep trouble and somebody needed to take charge of it. And the Lib Dems went into it thinking that it was their public duty to do so. And poor poor people, they were so deluded. I wrote a column a, a year after they took office in which I said the Lib Dems are being fatally confused with the Tories and nobody has any idea what they're doing there. And I was rung up by furious senior, senior Lib Dems who said, no, no, we, what we've got to show is that we're solidly at one with the leadership and we've got to show that we can be in power. And I said, and what good is that going to do you electorally? History shows that minority parties always get savaged at the end of coalitions. And the person I was talking to, who was the chief of strategy for the Liberal Party, said, people will look back in five years' time and they'll look at schools policy and they'll think, oh, that pupil premium, that was a very Liberal policy. That must have been the Liberal Democrats. <laughs> and then they'll vote for us. I said, my God, nobody, but nobody pays attention to politics like that and nobody is thinking about it and nobody is going to reward you. And you've got to start what, making what, clear what your public arguments are. What's the average statistic? The, the average British person spends four minutes thinking about politics every week. Is that right? Is or that every, right? And what, no, four yeah, minutes every hour oh, thinking about sex? <laughs> oh, so... Yes, yeah, so poor Lib Dems. I mean, they started making clear that they had something to say and that they were not Tories far, far too late. Everyone had written them off at that point. But Daniel. I think they're a good thing in British politics and I hope that somehow they will find out how to revise Daniel Finkelstein. I, I, I think you're asking the wrong question. We're, we're, we're trying to answer the question, what should the Liberal Democrats do or how should they do it? And I think the right question is why? And so um, you know, what is now the point? Uh, if the Liberal Democrats are equidistant between the Conservative Party and the Labour, and the Labour Party, I, there is a point to that, the, the middle position that Nick Clegg uh, outlined. But that position is completely impossible for the Liberal Democrats because it was a total disaster. It led them to electoral fiasco and they can't follow it. And they'll choose Tim Farron to be the leader and Tim Farron will choose a position to take the Liberal Party to the left. In which case, uh, if you want to have a left-wing party, why not just vote Labour, a huge party? Or if you want to protest, you could vote Green. What would be the point? So I think the Liberal, what the Liberal Democrats need to consider is, is this project any longer necessary, not is it viable? Uh, am I spent, you know, I, I joked about the independent newspaper, that every reader of the independent newspaper voted Liberal Democrat, and that was it. Um, and, um, and, you know, you, you do now have to address that question. And just because a lot of time has been invested in it and a lot of passion mm. has been invested in it, it's got a great history, it doesn't mean it's actually any longer making a particularly useful contribution. Danny, I, I, I need to come back on you one thing. I mean, twice... Briefly, David. If you yeah, know. once every five years, Danny recommends that either the Liberals or the Labour Party wind themselves up and join the others. The last time it was the Labour Party should wind itself up and join the Liberal Party and so on. Um, actually, as long as the Conservative Party has... Uh, is a coalition between good people like Danny and an appalling rebarbative right wing, there will be a space for people on the centre and centre right. Yes. Uh, and there should be an electoral space for them. The question is whether or not they find it. OK, I want to bring in another member of the audience, the lady in the front row there, please. My name's Antonia. What I wanted to know, um, the vo Labour voters that I've met so far have actually been in denial. They refuse to accept the results 
the blaming the voters for what happened. <laughs> and then we have these demonstrations starting. Are the next five years going to be with all these demonstrators every trying to bring down the government? Yeah. Jenny? Can I just say, shall we take three questions at once? Otherwise, I think it's going to be a bit frustrating for people who want to ask them. What do you think? Uh, let's just carry on like oh, this okay. for a moment. Well, I hope not. I thought that was incredibly childish. And, um, I mean, they're right to blame the voters. The voters definitely voted against them. It was the voters' fault. But um, when, you have, when you have demonstrations like that, um, where people are defacing war memorials, that's just not a, not a civilised way to carry on. And I doubt there's much appetite for that, really. Failing to, uh, failing to understand why people vote Conservative yeah. is the reason why people vote Conservative. So, it, it, you know, it, you, need on, you need always to have that uh, understanding of the other side. I, I felt um, very, very badly in the, over the last six weeks because my basic analysis of politics was about to be contradicted by the election results. Uh, as, and, con and after Thursday, I felt excellent because that didn't happen. And I think that... Uh, I, so I totally understand the feeling that people have, that their whole theory about how you know, society works is then contradicted by an election result. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but you have to work beyond that, otherwise you cannot persuade people to support your position. The incomprehension must be greatest in Scotland, David, where the... No, no, they, no, they no? Felt, no, because that's what they've told, been told we're like in England. No, absolutely. It completely fits the SNP's narrative about what England is supposed to be like. So they're, they're, if you're a nationalist, this is precisely the result that you would have anticipated. I'm thinking more of Scottish Labour's sense oh, Scottish of why Labour. they have been defeated so soundly. Um, I think that, the, uh, well, there is a recognition on their part that actually this is, uh, has been coming. It's a combination of historical forces and their own mistakes which have caught up with them, their own way in which they've run councils, the, own, the way in which they've leached their own political talent out of Scotland and into Westminster now to lose it for a generation. I mean, after all, a lot of Scots keep talking about, oh, well, you know, we were going to have influence. In 2010, a Scots MP was Prime Minister and a Scots MP <laughs> was Chancellor of the Exchequer in the same government. They'll never have more bloody influence than that, uh, frankly. Picking uh, up the pieces they're... from a Scottish banking crisis. No, 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 absolutely true. But I just want to say, finally, apropos of your point, there's an absolutely wonderful thing done by a Cambridge academic woman about why it is, she's put it on her blog and she's, she's a teacher, she's an academic, about why it is she won't speak to anybody who voted Tory anymore. And she's serious. It's not even a self parody and that's oh, really? speaks to Danny's and Jenny's point absolutely as long as you think like that you think and you cannot understand why people make decisions other than you you have no chance of appealing to them it's gone okay the check the gentleman there in the in the middle in the blue jacket thank you Blair Southerton excluding English MP no, excluding Scottish MPs from voting on English matters seems to be a most unsatisfactory way of providing devolution for the English. What should they do? Daniel Finkelstein. Well, I'm in favour of excluding Scottish, <laughs> excluding, uh, Scottish MPs from voting on English matters. So my, my view is that uh, would have been a might have been a better idea for everyone in the United Kingdom to vote on everything. Uh, but the moment it was decided that Scottish members of Parliament were the, or, or, or members of the Scottish Parliament were the only people who could determine the outcome of Scottish matters, it became untenable over the medium to long term that we would not have that arrangement in England. Now, you could, I don't, you could of course make the argument for an English Parliament. I think it's unnecessary to have that, and um, I don't want to see a, you know, plethora of parliaments. I think it's easier to hold um, the uh, Parliament to account if we don't do that. 
So I favour English votes for English laws. I think it's practicable. Uh, and well, what I, are the problems with it, Danny? From your point of view, what are the problems well, with it? Okay, the, 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 the problem is that there may be, there are theoretically occasions on which a party wins a majority in uh, when you take into account the whole of the United Kingdom, they don't win in England. But actually, those occasions are incredibly historically rare. So I think there are problems with it, but they're the same problems that occur in Scotland when Scottish members of Parliament are able to vote on things that English members of Parliament can't determine. And so I don't see why, the one, why there can be one rule for how we govern Scottish matters that don't cover English matters. Why would, why would you allow, why would it be reasonable to allow a, Scottish, a, a member of the SNP who, who doesn't even believe in the United Kingdom, who doesn't care about my, my son's uh, state school education, and who and who's ruling on my son's state school education doesn't affect their own children or their own country, uh, why would you allow them to determine it? No, no, David, David, David Aronovich. No, I, you see, you, you, you made a shift there, and you made an, a shift, in a, in a sense, from analysis to a shift to, if you like, political pleading. Uh, and that's the problem. Uh, yeah, of course, there's no reason why a member of the SNP should, but England is ten times bigger than Scotland and uh, everybody else put together. So when England makes a decision, even that's purely for the English... The consequences for everybody else in the United Kingdom tends to be profound. Now, the way in which we've dealt with this is by saying, well, there aren't so many of them that they're going to get in our face so much that if English people really don't want something, then in that case, the fringes, effectively the fringes or the nations are going to outvote them. And this is, speaks to your point, really, doesn't it? Um, uh, I think. So what you will get is you will have two tiers of MPs. Now, maybe this is, is inevitable, particularly if there is a new and advanced form of devolution, full fiscal autonomy or something even remotely like it for Scotland, this becomes very... The question then becomes, well... A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Okay, is it really solved by simply exempting people 
from voting in or not allowing people to vote on major issues in Parliament? Or are there possibly other ways we could do this? Now, one of the big problems is these are big questions. I would have, and I know it sounds like a kind of kick it into the long grass, I would have a proper constitutional convention to look at the structure of the United Kingdom, how it's governed and how we want to devolve all aspects of it, and I would throw a lot into that, etc. But none of the parties, particularly the Conservative Party, don't want it. They would rather bodge something together than take a long, hard look at it. And I think, I think, that's, I think that's a mistake. I understand it. But I would rather that we actually took some time out to really think about it. If you were advising the Labour leader, Jenny, and the Tories are going to proceed with English votes for English laws, would you advise them to oppose English votes for English laws on principle grounds, or is there a real danger in them opposing it for a party that needs to get back in the game in England? I think, I think the latter. If, if Labour has to come up with some kind of strategy to say to the English, we like you and you're important and your voice should be heard too, I'm far from sure how it should happen, which is why I rather like listening to David's proposal, although, although my idea of hell would be going along with such a constitutional convention, <laughs> either as a participant or as a reporter. I don't kinds of Really? I think you'd I promise love you. to be. <laughs> but, 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 but I've long thought that one Lady of Labour's problems... Oh, you've just, you've just made me appear? Thank you. I will tell, uh, them why, tell them why you're wearing this dress. Oh, I'm wearing this dress because of um, I'm going to a Buckingham Palace garden party. I don't always dress like this for the Times. <laughs> and everyone here thought it was for them. <laughs> I'm going on a purely anthropological interest, you understand, not for the sandwiches. Um, but I wrote a column back in October um, when the whole row about Scotland post-referendum was at its height, um, saying that Labour absolutely had to address this question of what did it have to say to England. And there was huge unhappiness again within the party not listened to by the leadership about the idea that we can't be seen just to privilege the Scots. And nobody at the centre, as usual, paid any attention to that. Well, I should say that if those who want to read uh, Jenny's column, if they go to the Times .co.uk slash Comment Central. I'll link to that article and other articles that uh, provide background to what we've been discussing. We're nearly out of time, but I'm going to take Jenny's instruction and take three final questions, if there, if there are them. And um, I can ask the panellists to be brief, then we'll finish more or less on time. So, well, a microphone to that lady there, the gentleman in the middle, and there was, and the gentleman um, there, if we can get a microphone there as well. So we'll start off with the lady there. We'll take all three at a time and I'll ask the panellists to be brief and not necessarily answer each question. Alexandra Stilwell. Um, I was just wondering um, what you thought about why the pollsters got it all so wrong. And is there any value in, in polls? Because they were so off, even Fan right up until the last minute. Absolutely. Fantastic and very relevant question. Uh, Edward Cox, um, are the postponed boundary changes going to crush Labour? And the final question to the gentleman in the blue jacket again. Well, uh, it wasn't really a question. I was going to say that uh, I think you've underestimated or, or have rather ignored the factors underlying the uh, uh, political process. And uh, uh, they would be rather more important, I think, than any consideration of the party. It, it can be seen in the, the, the sudden demise of, of the Lib Dems, for example at the election, but something like that could equally take place um, in, the, in the following government, okay, which well, might well change things considerably. Thank you for the comment. We haven't had any questions on Nigel Farage, but um, maybe we can, his unresignation. But Jenny, do you want to... 
take one or two of those questions. Very quickly, uh, boundary changes, yes. It's going to be absolutely devastating for Labour. I don't know how, that's just an additional obstacle. Don't know how they're going to recover from that. Could mean between 20 and 40 seats tilting Tory where before they tilted Labour. Where do the pollsters get it so wrong? That's the million-dollar question. We had um, the Labour pollster on Newsnight last night saying that Labour's private polling did tell them that things oh, were shifting so from October. But, but what he said, his potential answer to this was that normally even phone polls, which are interrogate people a little more than online polls do, simply ask people, how are you going to vote? They go straight in raw like that. So people aren't really thinking. What the Labour Party's polling did, and it was more expensive to do this, ring people up and start talking to them about what issues are important to you and what really matters to you in your daily life. And you get people thinking politically so that by the time you say, and what would you vote, you're already thinking about actually making choices. And possibly that may have resulted in something that was more accurate. But we really don't yet know, and, and, and we're all waiting to find out. Uh, Danny, on the... Um... OK, so um, on polling, we don't know the answer. I'm very suspicious of what the Labour Party's pollster said. Peter Kellner correctly described it as like saying, ringing up Camelot on the evening after the lottery, saying I had all the numbers, but I just didn't buy a ticket. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we did a lot of work with bringing up Labour people. Lots of the people around Ed Miliband thought they were going to do much better than that. The, actually, the, the people in the at the top of the Conservative Party did know they were doing much better than uh, people thought. Linton Crosby did and Jim Messina did, but not through polling, through methods of what they thought was going to happen in each constituency. We don't know the answer. It may be that people who are conservative, who are other de otherwise demographically the same as another person, won't take a small amount of money to fill in a survey. So they're, they're, <laughs> they're too you know, rich. They're, it's not because they're rich, because they're demographically the same. It's because they're, they're just not interested in advertising their... Conservatives are not the sort of people who want to paint their opinion on a no. war memorial, basically. Um, so the um, it's not the same as an online. No, no. I'm, I'm, what I meant, what I, what I, I meant by that was that they're, they're just um, lot. They're, there is probably there is possibly some quality to voting conservative that is tied up with not advertising your opinion, and that would explain a lot of what's happened in the poll. It may not be an accurate description, but it's certainly one of the ones the pollsters take seriously. Ben, On the ben, ben Page from Ipsos Mori's explanation is it's less shy Tories. He's what he called lazy Labour, is that lots of young people, 18 to 30, who say they will vote Labour, yes. just don't turn, turn out, out factors is yeah. a Just two quick things. The boundaries, um, yes, it's very bad for Labour. There is a, there is a slight kick for the Conservatives. In the 92 to 97 period, the boundary reviews was one of the reasons why there was a lot of Tory dissent, because the MPs were fighting each other for the, uh, for the selections in constituencies, and uh, that caused a, some degree of Tory consent as people tried to appeal to constituency activists, and so there is a slight kick there. Uh, and then your point, finally, structurally. Let's never forget the structural things, the big class demographic movements, the big economic changes, who the leaders are. Those are so huge that all the factors like boundary reviews and opinion polls are subsumed in that. And when we forget that, we have a failure of political analysis. Yeah, David Aronovich. I, I, I just want, because I, because I, I mean, I think actually the problem is more likely to lie in the sampling because pollsters do all kinds of things, they think, to try and make sure that their polls are, re their, uh, their samples are representative. And they do involve quite a lot of assumptions and jiggery-pokery, and it is possible for them to get it wrong. And I think that's probably more likely. I do also think there's something in the, uh, in the lazy, lazy Labour thing. On the structural question, I just want to say very simply this. We are still to digest some of the geographical and geopolitical lessons from the election. Scotland's won, but there are very significant differences elsewhere. London drew away, again, 
from the rest of the southeast and the rest of England in a significant way. Um, and that has all kinds of implications. It's not just London, by the way. London, Brighton, Cambridge, Oxford, Manchester effectively form a kind of, if you like, a kind of cosmopolitan um, uh, self, which is didn't quite... You, didn't you want to write a column where you wanted to sort of declare unilateral a, independence, yeah, the sort a, of metropolitan Britain with sort of, you know, motorways between London and Manchester? Exactly, you know, exactly. Between. I posited it, I said, essentially, if the rest of England wants to go all kind of UKIP-y, then maybe London should consider... It was a kind Ulipi. of tongue-in-cheek thing. Um, yeah. uh, but nevertheless, a lot of that's happened, and there's a very, very big difference in the north as well, where very substantial UKIP votes. And seats. In the seat I'm in in London, the UKIP vote was 2.8%. Uh, if, if, if we say Scotland's a different country, actually, there are about four different countries coexisting mm. politically inside the United Kingdom, maybe even more. And one of the big questions for anybody is how you keep them all on side and offer them all something and keep them wanting to stay together, I think, speaking to your structural point. Jenny, you wanted to come back on something? Just the one ray of light for the polling industry is that the exit poll was remarkably accurate. They had to choose between um, a range of outcomes because every exit poll has 3% margin. And because all the polls up to then had shown that Labour was doing very well, they chose the bottom end of their range to put out at 10 o'clock at night. But if they got it so right, then there is hope for the polling industry. We just find out what the exit poll did that everyone else didn't. 100% turnout. That's one of the things that that's led Ben Page to have that conclusion. Yeah. So everybody who was in the exit poll didn't just say they were likely to they vote. They actually had. did vote. Yeah. They actually had voted. So that made it an awful lot easier to uh, judge it. OK, final question to each of you. Nigel Farage resigned on Friday, but now he's unresigned. Are we glad that this guy who brings colour to our politics is back, or were we, oh, did actually we want him to depart the, the I, scene? I, I think UKIP has made the pragmatic and correct decision, actually, to keep him, um, because uh, he is what they are, and he's... The, uh, you know, large part of their appeal, and they did get 14% of the electorate. Although I think their project is totally doomed, um, and uh, but I think he's made an idiot of himself, and actually will damage him. Uh, so he did much, much better not saying what he was going to do. But they've reacted pragmatically to the situation. I would have done the same. Yeah, I, I think UKIP voters have entirely discounted the fact that Nigel Farage can behave like an idiot. I don't yes, believe I it will hurt him for one <laughs> second. I think in that sense, you know, he walks on water. His, his appeal is, I'm a maverick, and he can do maverick things. As to whether we should mind, I haven't enjoyed UKIP's prescriptions, but I think they've done something very important, which is that they are forcing all the parties, perhaps belatedly, to start paying attention to the people. And they're very important, the people who do feel that the contemporary world doesn't have anything much to offer them and that they're not respected and they're not valued and they don't have a lot of hope for their mm. children. And I think we all have an absolute obligation to respond to that. You can't just write off a great raft of the population saying, well, we don't like what you think. And UKIP is, okay. because the party is going to fight for those votes and have had to fight for those votes, are forcing that rethinking. Yeah, the difficulty sometimes is telling those people that actually quite a lot of that is their own fault, unfortunately. Uh, uh, one of the things that's really interesting about UKIP votes is if you slip the map over educational underattainment in Britain, they absolutely match. But that could they, be no, the no, 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 that does no, no, no. But that, but, but a lot of that mm. speaks to anti-education cultures in some of those places. Actually, also a lot of these places yeah. are places where they have binary, i.e., grammar and comprehensive school systems, so people are already Look. regarded regarded as failures. I just want to say something about, however, about Nigel Farage personally before we go. I wouldn't care if I never saw the bugger again. I really wouldn't. Him and Russell Brand, I have had enough. It's like kind of, you know. It, it, 
it is, it is time for a new gimmick from somebody other than those two. Is it Russell Brown, the guy who said don't vote, then said vote Green, and then said vote Labour, and as now the anti-capitalist is trademarking his revolution logo so he can sell T-shirts and no one can copy also, it. He's that said, Russell Brown. And that's just Nigel Farage. <laughs> also, Russell Brown has just said, oh, I only said I'd support Labour and interviewed Ed Miliband because um, I was pushed by some journalists and I didn't really know what I was doing. I don't understand politics. Uh, yeah. Well, fortunately, as I hope you've uh, seen today, we have Times columnists that have a little bit better insight than Russell Brand. Can I thank David Aronovich, Jenny Russell, Daniel Finkelstein for being my guest today? Can I thank Dave McGuire, my producer? Can I thank Times Plus for putting on this event? But most of all, can I thank all of you in the audience for coming to our London Bridge offices today to be part of this two-part podcast. Thank you very much, and I hope you'll see you again. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Your History is a new podcast brought to you from The Times, and it brings together the real-life stories from our obituaries desk, which have been published for over a century. In this brand new show, we build on this legacy and explore the endlessly fascinating lives who have enriched and informed our own. Join me and our sponsor, Ancestry, as we journey through your history. History.